Alright, we are in Judges chapter 2, um, starting in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in in Timnath Hiras, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of, the fa- of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Tonight's um, message is called The Continuing Emergency of Our Faith. It comes from the passage that we just read. It's fair to say that Judges chapter 2, verse 6, to Judges chapter 3, verse 6, is kind of an overview of the entire book. That for the next month, as we go through this section of uh, verses, it's going to be outlining what will happen through the, from chapter 3 to chapter um, 16. So it's kind of like a 30,000 viewpoint of like the themes that we will see throughout the rest of the book. So how did we get here? Um, we have Joshua's death. Joshua, the Israelite leader who led the people um, into the promised land across the Jordan River. And he has now passed away. And we see that there's two generations that are notice that, that we notice. Um, the, the first thing I want to point out is like how quick they are to disobedience. We see the first generation who, who was with Joshua, who knew Joshua and obeyed the Lord. But yet, as we have heard from the past weeks, they did not do what they were commanded to. So this is considered the faithful generation. And as we read, starting in verse 27, they did not drive out the inhabitants. In verse 28, they did not drive out completely. Verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites. Um, Verse 30, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Uh, verse 32, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, um, and so on. And so we see that this first generation who was with Joshua, um, although were a faithful generation, as they mentioned here, were disobedient, did not do as what the Lord commanded. And then second, they have the generation that follows that, and that's kind of where we pick up here um, today in Joshua. Um, and we see in, as we heard from last week, it says in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become a thorn, shall become thorns in your, in your sides. And so we see that the Lord plans to use these Canaanites, the people that they were commanded to drive out as thorns in the sides of his people as the Israelites. And so I kind of want to expound on that tonight a little bit. The first thing we need to to understand is the promised land. Has anyone here ever been to Israel? Just Jared and I? Well, just as it says in scripture that um, the promised land is the land flowing of milk and honey is also that very much so today. Um, It is the perfect place to cultivate cultivate crop and livestock year round. You know, they, they make jokes about farmers here in the states because farmers only have one crop rotation you just plant in the spring you harvest in the fall and then you're done 
there they have three crop rotations. They don't stop. Year round, they are planting, harvesting, planting, harvesting, planting, harvesting. Even to this day, it is still a luxious green, perfect soil, perfect place to grow literally anything. Um, and so we need to understand that for the context upon which we find the Israelites here um, today. And so it's a rich, fruitful land that's also dependent upon rainfall, just as any other place. Um, they depend on rainfall to make crops and make the ground to grow. Um, so we see here that the Israelites um, forsake, they abandon Yahweh, and they pick up Baal worship. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about Baal worship. Um, Baal was the god of storms, of weathers, but also of fertility. Um, so they would often, the, the Canaanites would worship Baal for crops, for blessing of crops, for blessings of livestock, and for blessing of a family. If they wanted all these things to flourish and provision to come, then they would go and worship Baal for these very things. And so Baal kind of had a, a female counterpart, and we see her name here as um, Asheroth. Another place in Scripture we'll see her name being, um, her name is sometimes Ashtort. And so what Baal and Ashtor and this worship, what the Canaanites would do is they would have temples full of holy prostitutes, if you will. And so they would go and sleep with these um, prostitutes in a way to kind of coerce Baal. To, it's not let go and let Baal. It's like, hey, Baal, like, let me remind you of what like, I hope you are doing. So they encourage the gods to take part and then and their sexual activity will then be the blessing it says the orgasm that is then like the blessing to the Canaanites is that if they sleep then thus like the the outworking of that is then blessings upon the Canaanites so they would coerce the gods encourage them um, to to sleep together so then that they would then receive the blessings of this um, and very quickly, we see that the Israelites fall for it. It's not, it's not 10 generations later, it's literally the following generation of, that did not drive them out succumbs to this kind of worship. And so you can kind of see and imagine it playing out of um, someone talking to their neighbor, neighbor and then inviting them to, oh my word. <laughs> Inviting their neighbor, saying like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Like, would you want to join my son and I as we go to the temple and partake in the mid, uh, midweek service? And so they were enticing and um, inviting. And as we said, that <laughs> as, as we said that this land is um, very dependent upon rain and yeah, we'll just abandon it. <laughs> The, the land was very dependent upon rain and the weather, and so thus, them being surrounded by people who were worshiping gods who directly were to bless what they are pursuing, what they are running after, was very enticing and very intriguing. But as, as it says here in Scripture, they abandoned Yahweh. And Psalm 106 encaptures all of this. I'm going to read it real quick. So Psalm 106, verse 34 reads, They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. 
They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became, thus became, they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. And so there is a staunch contrast here, as we see the God of Baal and his counterpart, um, Asheroth, Asheroth, um, that they worship a God who they view doing human activity. That if this God wanted to create, if this God wanted to move in power, they would do it through the same ways that humans do. And this is a staunch contrast to Yahweh, who spoke everything into existence, who is not muddied or needs to do human activity to bring about what he so desires. And actually, this, this led me into more research. And if you look into like every creation origin of every other religion, it's either super, um, super small or not very descriptive whatsoever, like Islam's like that. Or it's, it's just, it's like Dungeons and Dragons. It's like there's like Hinduism and Buddhism. It's just like there's this crazy origin story of um, that. It is just hard to believe. But nonetheless, it is like God's doing man things. Where our God who, sp- who brought everything out of nothing into existence, like spoke into existence. And we're not pantheistic in the sense that God did not take part of himself and make everything else. It's that God took ex from nothing to something. Um, so for them, for the Israelites, or for the Canaanites, their God informs their worldview and also informs their culture. And you can see that, that the culture and the things that they did directly de- derived from their God, from Baal, and how they understood Baal. And so it's fair to say, to make the blanket statement, if the heart of man is wicked, and culture is the outworking of, of man and the community of man, then culture apart from a regenerated heart is wicked and evil. Thus, you wouldn't be able to go somewhere in the world today and run into a culture that is completely honoring and glorifying to God. And even the Israelites who tried to create a culture, tried to create a kingdom that was honoring to God, still failed. And so thus, culture, I think it's fair to say, is always at odds with God. The broad, general culture. Obviously, there's minor subcultures, but... Um, And so a quote says this, we must retain a distinct separation from culture while mounting mounting an an active opposition to it, else we blend it. I'll read that again because I stuttered 10 times. We must retain a distinct separation from culture while mounting an active opposition to it, else we blend it. And so it's not enough just to reject culture and to separate ourselves from you know all that's around us and what the majority is and what we're being influenced by but as christians our mandate just as god mandated the the israelites to drive out the canaanites they couldn't just separate themselves because they tried that and nonetheless the canaanite influence reached them so just as the israelites were to drive out the canaanites we also are to 
we also are to mount an attack against culture. And we even see this throughout Scripture. Um, that the gates of hell will not prevail. Um, but I... So the, the last point of this observation is this, that notice how the Canaanites tempted the Israelites, how they influenced them. And it's in little day-to-day things. It's like, oh, you want your crops? Like, you want food? You want to be clothed? It's like, come worship Baal. Like, he'll provide that. Or what about like wealth and livestock? It's like, oh, you need money? Like, you, you're concerned about this? Or you're concerned about the safety or the health of your family? Like, come worship Baal. And like, he'll satisfy that here and now. And so they coerce the gods. And so the way that the culture, the, Can- the culture of the Canaanite creeps into the Israelites <laughs> is that they take their focus on go- off God and to focus on the little, I don't want to say mundane, but nonetheless important things of life that we do care and stress about and we are concerned for. So the first observation is that culture is at odds with God and we are called, just as the Israelites, not only to separate ourselves from the culture, but also to mount an attack against it. The second observation is um, apostasy, which is something that is not talked about a lot, as um, Michael Kruger would say, a couple, a guy I was listening to. Um, so it says in verse 10, in all that generation also were gathered to the fathers. This is the first generation with Joshua. And there arose another generation, which is who we're talking about now, after them who did not know the Lord or the work of that he had done for Israel. So this language, um, other generation after them who did not know the Lord, is similar to language that we find in 1 Samuel um, chapter 10. Or, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you'll turn there, it's like probably 10 pages to your right. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned and the priest's servant would come, and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men were very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So we see this, the very first language used is, now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And so that's interesting, that considering that they are priests. They are the ones who are interceding or making atonement on behalf of the people of Israel. And so it's not that um, they didn't know about Yahweh. They certainly knew about Yahweh like the, for their, their priests. It's also not that they're ignorant. It's not like they haven't heard about what Yahweh has done to deliver the people out of Egypt and to bring them into the promised land and to conquer the enemies. Like they're certainly not ignorant either, but rather this did not know is that there's no regard that they um, cared nothing for Yahweh. So they're, they're well aware of who Yahweh is and they're also well aware of what he has done, but there's no respect. There's no uh, authority of Yahweh into their life. They, 
you know, they're, they're priests. They, they, they fulfill this position, but nonetheless do not um, acknowledge Yahweh for who he is or allow him to speak into their lives. And a large part of this is, is that this generation, this did not know, is there's a lack of experiential uh, religion, experiential faith. And so I, I want to safeguard this and because the word experiential and the faith can be problematic as there are extremes even in our world and our culture today that drive only based off experience. However, only the knowledge of God does not suffice either because that is what like uh, uh, apostasy is, is that people who believe that they have salvation, they believe that they... Um, are walking with the Lord based off their knowledge, but however, there's no experiencing of the Lord. And so there's this, this fine line that maybe we can discuss more of what's it look like to have experienced religion that's not just knowledge, but also just isn't experience. Um, there's also a loss of historical memory. It says uh, in verse um, 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. And so... They're forgetting what the Lord has done. They're not claiming that what the Lord has done for their forefathers is also what they have done to them, that they do not worship the same faithful God. Um, but nonetheless, apostasy is a very real thing. Apostasy isn't an unbeliever who never comes to faith and just dies off. Um, it's not a someone of a different religion, like a Muslim, and never comes to faith. Apostasy, apostasy is someone who claimed to be a Christian, claimed to be walking with the Lord, and over time, maybe in this life, or maybe even at death, was proven otherwise. And the first example that comes to mind is Judas. That, that's who we think about, someone who's been apostasy, or apostate, right? That's, yeah, it is Judas. And so much so that whenever Jesus says, like, one of you guys will betray me, the disciples question themselves. They said, like, is it I? Like, it's not like Judas was the clear um, target or the, the ripe example. And it even talks about how, um, you know, it, it never mentions that Judas wasn't able to do like miracles or wonders or healings. And so it's like maybe in this life, people will come forward and it'll be made known that they will never truly walk with the Lord. But also even on judgment day, as it says in Matthew, there'll be many people who say, Lord, 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 have we not done many things, wonderful things in your name, produce miracles and cast out demons. And so even then, like people who die thinking and believing they are walking with the Lord aren't in reality. And so um, apostasy is a real thing as we see in the book of Hebrews. We see it throughout scripture actually. And it's, it's a warning for us as believers that, you know, faith is from the Lord and also sustained from the Lord. But nonetheless, we are called to examine ourselves and our spiritual health constantly. Um, you know, if you would go to the doctor and get your blood sugar and get your um, blood work done, you know, you can have like the exact details and numbers and like you can know that, but do you know where your spiritual health is? And we're not saying that you can lose your salvation, but nonetheless, we are called with a warning to constantly be examining ourselves. And that is why as a church, when before we partake in communion, we have a time of meditation to search our hearts and to confess any sin, to confess any lack of faith or doubt and come before the Lord and surrender to Him and hoping and believing that our faith that we have and claim isn't of from Him, knowing that He will sustain us, He will keep us. Um, 
so that that's my second observation is the apostasy we see is that it's not just you know it's they knew about yahweh they were knew about what he has done but nonetheless they did not regard him they did not acknowledge him they did not worship him for what he is and my third observation is um kind of a remedy to both um, we can talk more about working out these two things like the culture and how to keep faith but the, I believe the remedy is this, and that is God's character. Um, the, is, the Canaanites, as does every other religion, they work to coerce God to be in their corner. They work, they, they cut themselves, they, they worship, they do all these things in order to gain favor with God, to woo Him, to manipulate Him, to get Him to do something that they want, that they desire, a blessing or wisdom or providence whatever it may be however that is not yahweh that is not the god that we serve today or the master you know as it, it reads in matthew 7 oh, i think i have a bookmark there, there it is. It says this in matthew 7 ask and will be given to you seek and you will find Knock and will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We don't worship a God who is far away that we are trying to coerce or to bring into our corner or gain favor of. But we are worshiping a God who took on human flesh and walked this earth and knows what it's like to be in our shoes and experience heartbreak and betrayal and suffering and hardships and trials and, and fear and, and all the things that we go through. And this is a God who is, is known for his steadfast love and his mercy that never ends and is new every morning and his gentle heart. You know, like this is the God we worship that we don't have to coerce. We don't have to work towards, but because of what Christ has done, because of what he has accomplished, we can now be brought forward to. And because of that, we can trust. We can trust that, you know, we can live in obedience and despite our culture and the influence and the ways it weighs upon us and leads us astray. We can also trust that he who is faithful to save us will also be faithful to claim us one day when he returns. So, I'll pray now. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, not because of um, anything we've done or anything we are, God, but actually, Lord, in despite of who we are, in despite of our wickedness and our failings, our shortcomings, even today alone, and our sin against you and forgetting your goodness and your kindness to us, Lord, you love us. And how wonderful that is to be found in Christ and to know that no longer is there punishment for sins, but now there's life abundance and life to the fullest. And so we praise you, God, for your faithfulness, your steadfast love and your mercy and all that you have done, all that you have shown and proven in through Christ and is now true for us even today, Lord. Um, God, we just pray this time we would just continue to worship your wonderful name and to praise you and to learn more about you. Pray that our discussions and conversations is glorifying and honoring to you and truly encouraging and sharpening and building up of one another, God. And but Lord, we just 
pray for your bride, Lord, that you would have your way in us and that we would be purified as, as your bride. So we just thank you and we praise you. It's your holy name. I ask and pray all these things.